John chapter 6, verse 66. We'll be reading 66 through 71. After this, many of His disciples turned back and no longer walked with Him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered Him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon, the Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. I've entitled this message, the last in the series of messages on John 6, Burn the Boats. Burn the boats. The Greek warriors were some of the most vicious, skilled warriors of the ancient world. Many of you might know that by practice, when they sailed to make war, having arrived at their destination, disembarked from their ships, the first command from their leader was always, burn the boats. Burn the boats. It was the only hope they had of retreat. They couldn't go anywhere else. They couldn't get home. The only way home was to win the war. And so this psychological warfare, in a sense, empowered those men to conquer the known world at their time. It was picked up, this practice of burning the boats was picked up by the Spanish explorer Cortez. He left Cuba, sailed for the mainland of Mexico, what is now Mexico, with 600 soldiers. And when they arrived, he told them standing on the beaches, we will burn the boats. They didn't actually burn the boats in Cortez's instance. They grounded them, but they were useless now. They were shipwrecked. They had no hope, so they had to take victory. They had to conquer their prize. They had no hope. There was no way to turn back. There was only forward. What I'm saying to you today is that 66 through 71 is Jesus saying, the boats are burned. There's no going back. There's no retreat. You want to leave me also? In the Greek, that question is constructed as if Christ anticipated no to be the answer. No, we don't want to leave. They didn't want to leave. Look at what Peter said. One of the greatest confessions in all the Bible. Lord, to whom shall we go? We now know that your word is eternal life. What a great confession. Followed by the words, look at what Peter says there in verse 69. And we have believed and we have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. There was no retreat in Peter. 
There was no backing up. There was nowhere to go but forward in his relationship with Christ. I have nowhere else to go. No one will take me at this point. I have no hope except you. You're the only holy one of God. I believe in you. I know you. I trust you. It's a great confession. Now, he makes two great confessions near this time. This one recorded for us in John 6, and then also the confession recorded for us in Matthew 16. Very similar in its wording, but not the same confession. Many people were questioning who Jesus was in that passage in Matthew 16, and Jesus said, Who do you say that I am? And to that, Peter replied, You are the Christ. It's a great confession. Notice, following that confession, what Jesus says to him. Upon this rock, I will build my church. And what? The gates of hell will not prevail against us. Do you get the sense of burning the boats? Jesus says, there is no retreat. We're forward. We're conquering. We're bringing the kingdom of God to the earth. Why then are we in retreat, church? Why in the face of the danger of this world today, in our culture, are we in retreat? Why is the church in America plateaued and declining? Why is the church in America in full out, in a sense, in full out panic? Why? Well, I think this passage, 66 through 71, could show us some things here. I've got two simple points for you. One point is, very first here, that I want us to look at is that many who profess Christ will fall away. And second point is, few who profess Christ will remain in the faith. Few. Many will retreat. Few will remain. And I believe what we are seeing in the church today is no different than what has gone on in the church from all time past. And that is this. A winnowing is taking place. In some cultures now, it's a, it, it is a, it's a promise of death to be a Christian. A winnowing is taking place. People are under persecution. People are being killed for their faith in Christ. That's no different than any other time in the history of the world, except that last year more people were martyred for the Christian faith in the world than in any century before. Last century was the worst century of Christian persecution. The winnowing fork is in His hand. He is pushing away those who are false believers, and He is gathering to Himself those who are true believers because the boats have been burned and there is no retreat. We must move forward. The kingdom of God is coming to the world. This is contrary to the popular view of the world in the, in the evangelical church today, Protestant church in America. Those who on TV and on the radio and in their books herald that there's no hope. That's the message the evangelical church seems to be pushing in our day. We're going to lose. We have no hope in this life. And yet, Scripture paints the picture of hope and of a conquering Savior. His army is being built, He is on the move, and the kingdom of God is being brought and established in this world through His ministry. 
And it's not without opposition. Many who profess Christ will fall away. I want you to see that in verse 66. After this, you see the word, many of His disciples turned back and no longer walked with Him. In 6, 1 through 15, when Jesus multiplied the bread and the fish, there were many there. They flooded the, the, the countryside. They had flocked to see Him do miracles and hear Him teach. Many came. Huge crowd. Big ministry. And yet at the end of that story, it says He perceived they were going to take Him and try to make Him the king. And so He withdrew from them. And when He withdrew, many of them left. Many, they, they kind of dispersed. In verse 22, we pick it up that some have followed Him as far as the other side of the sea. In verse 22. Some have followed Him that far. They're willing to hear more from Him. They, Jesus tells them, you have come that you might have the bread. You're laboring after the physical bread I've offered you yesterday when you should be offering, uh, laboring after the bread I offer in myself, the spiritual bread. But nevertheless, there were many people around there on that country, in that countryside who had followed Him. Many. And then Jesus launches into the teaching about eating His flesh and drinking His blood. Jesus launches off into the fact that God is sovereign in salvation, that only those who the Father draws come to Him, and all who come, He will by no means cast them out. Jesus proclaims that He is the Son of God, incarnate in the flesh, very God and very man. Jesus begins to draw the net, become very specific in His doctrine and in His teaching. And the response from the Jews is, don't we know this man? Isn't this Joseph's son? And the response of the Jews is that they begin to grumble against him. But then last week we saw in verses 60 through 65 that many of his disciples heard it and said, these are hard sayings, difficult to accept, is the, is the word that should be there. It's difficult to accept these things, Jesus. Jesus knew they were grumbling against him. You see, because the crowd was being winnowed, it was being narrowed. His ministry was narrow. From this point forward, Christ will not gather crowds. Christ will only gather a few. We look at this passage and we kind of glance over those details that I've just mentioned. That He went from many, thousands. Some say as many as 20,000 were gathered to have their bellies filled with the bread. 5,000 men, double that, you get at least 10,000. And if any Jewish home, respectable Jewish home, had children in it, if possible, many probably, four or five children, two or three, you do the math. There were many people there on that countryside that day when this chapter begins. And when it ends, in verse 71, there are 12 from 20,000 maybe to 12. And then Jesus drops the bombshell. It's really not 12. It's 11. Because one of you is a liar, a devil, a deceitful man. Do you get the picture of what's happening here? Many profess Christ in their day and in our day, but few truly believe in Him. Few, very few. We seem to read over the passages where Jesus says clearly that narrow is the way 
and few that find it that leads to eternal life. But broad is the path, and many who are on it to destruction. We seem to miss the point of Matthew 7 when he says, Many will come to me in that day saying, Lord, Lord, and I will say, Depart from me, for I never knew you. We don't like to preach those verses. We don't like to read those verses. We don't like to contemplate those verses because in truth, there is a part of us that is afraid of turning back, that we will be guilty of turning back. Have you ever contemplated that? Have you ever thought about it? This is too hard. I can't stand it. I can't take the fight of faith any longer. I'm tired. I'm weary. I want to rest. I want to quit. Maybe it's not as Christ has said. Maybe it's not as my mom and dad taught me. Maybe it's not true. What if it's all a lie? There's a fear in our heart, isn't there, at times, of turning back. That word to turn back there in 66, after this, many of His disciples turned back. That means they no longer followed Him. They no longer walked with Him. They no longer were disciples of His. And the Bible's full of men like this, isn't it? Let's just look at a couple. One, Saul in the Old Testament. Saul started well, didn't he? He stood head and shoulders above all the men of Israel. He looked like a king. He looked presidential, didn't he? That's the guy we want to lead us. Strong, courageous, brilliant, intelligent, good-looking, charismatic. I can hear the people of Israel. He's the perfect king. But the end of Saul's life was not a beautiful picture, was it? The Bible says the Spirit of God was withdrawn from him. The anointing left him. And we see Saul at the end of his life having to take his own life because he's rebelled for so long against God. That's really what happened there in that battlefield. The gig was up. He wasn't a real believer. He did not trust in God for his salvation. He had no hope in Christ. It's a sad story. Now, before you exalt David, David was no better as a man than Saul was. He was a murderer. He was an adulterer. He had, illegitimate, he had an illegitimate child. What was the difference in the two? When they fought the fight of faith, when their faith was put to the test, one man said, I have presumed on God and I've done it my way. And the other said, far be it from me to presume on God. We'll do it your way. One submitted to Christ. The other rejected Christ. One had genuine faith. One was a phony. Many phonies are among us. Many. Demas, in 2 Timothy 4.10, sad epitaph on a life. When Demas is introduced, he's a laborer with Paul. Then he goes to simply being mentioned. Demas is with me also. No no mention about his faithfulness. And last words we hear of Demas in the New Testament. Paul says in verse 9, Come to me quickly. Verse 10, For Demas has forsaken me for the cares of this world and returned to Thessalonica. It's a sad story. He turned back. It was too hard. Persecution was real. His faith was tested and it was found lacking. It was not real faith. And I tell you, the church is filled with these people of false faith. The disciples 
proved their lack of genuine faith in verse 66 because they walked away from Christ. They turned their back on Him. They went away. They proved it. And I say to you that the proximity of your life to Christ does not guarantee you have true faith. Just because you're near Christ does not mean you believe truly, acceptingly, salvifically in Christ. You say, how can you make that statement? Judas, was there anyone closer to Christ than the twelve? Was there anyone who looked the part more than the twelve? Judas preached the word. Judas cast out demons. Judas traveled the countryside. Judas was the banker of the twelve. Judas was trusted by his fellow men. He looked like a believer, and yet Jesus says he's a devil. He has false faith. So just because you say, well, I'm closer to Christ than that man is. I go to church. I do good things. I'm serving the Lord. I, I can tell you what the gospel is. I said the prayer. I walked the aisle. I've come close to Christ. I must be a real Christian. Lest you get confident in your closeness in proximity, let me warn you, that doesn't guarantee true faith. Judas is a prime example. Just being close is not enough. Just looking the part is not enough. As a matter of fact, this man from Kerioth is labeled with the worst of all labels, Diablo. He's a devil. How painful it must have been for the twelve to watch 20,000 leave, to watch hundreds leave, and then to be told, one of you is going to leave to also. Many who profess Christ fall away. The apostle falls away. The apostate, excuse me, falls away in times of trial or because of strong doctrine. You see, they were willing to stay with Christ as long as he was playing the part of a, of a, of a uh, miracle worker. As long as he was healing people, as long as he was giving us food, we're fine. We love him. We want to be with him. But as soon as hard teaching began, as soon as trials came, can you imagine the Jews following Him as they heard Him talk the way He was about Himself being God in the flesh? Can you imagine? They knew what came for blasphemers. They understood that deserved a stoning. They knew that under the Roman power, the, the, the Roman Caesar, anyone who put himself up as a king would be destroyed and anyone who followed Him would be destroyed. They understood what was at risk when Christ said that He had a kingdom? And when Christ said, I am God in the flesh, they understood from both their civil authorities and their religious authorities, their lives were in jeopardy. I tell you, when times get hard and when teaching gets strong, apostates walk away from the faith. But don't be discouraged by that because in First Timothy, I mean, 1 John chapter 2, this same writer in John 6, he writes in 1 John 2, Beginning in verse 18, children, it is the last hour. We're in the last days. As you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. Listen to this. They went out from us because they were not of us. But they, For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. 
But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. Listen to the similarity. I, I, I really believe, I, I was thinking this week, this, he's thinking of John chapter 6 when he writes 1 John 2. He's remembering the countryside. You see it? They all went out up from us because they were not of us. And they had to be made plain, so they went out from us because they're not of us. Listen to the, what he says after that that really, really just made it clear to me. He's thinking of John 6. Look in verse 20. But you have been anointed by the Holy One. What did Peter say? We've come to know that you are the Holy One of God. You're the Holy One. And you have, and, and you all have knowledge. What did Peter say? We have believed and now we know that you are the Holy One of God. You see, I think 1 John 2 is written with the thoughts of what happened in John 6 on his mind. And guess what? It was happening again. In 1 John, he's saying it's happening right now. People are leaving because they're not from us. They're not of us. They're not true believers. He says that in a way to encourage the true disciple. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it and because no lie is of the truth. What a beautiful picture we have of true faith. That it stands through the trials. It stands through the tests. It stand, true faith stands when hard teaching is presented. And it is not about how talented... It's not about how acceptable you are. It's about the power of Christ. I offer you again Saul as an example. You will not enter the kingdom of God because you're more talented, more knowledgeable, more beautiful, more acceptable. You will not enter the kingdom of God based on those things. Take Saul as your example. You will enter through him and him alone. By his power. By His words of eternal life. That's how you will enter into the kingdom. Second point. Few who profess Christ will remain in faith. I want to make a few references here and then I want to close. Belief precedes knowledge in this passage. Isn't that odd to the human mind? Look at what Peter says in verse 69. <coughs> And we have believed and have come to know. Wait a minute, Peter. Don't you mean you've, you've come to know and now you believe? No. That's not what he meant. He said exactly what he meant. And if you think about your conversion, your salvation, and your life with Christ, you'll know what he means too, won't you? God drew you to himself, didn't he? He caused you to believe before you had all the facts. Matter of fact, I don't have all the facts now, do you? All the facts aren't required. You don't have to know it all to be saved. You have to believe. And that's granted to Peter. See, Peter says, we have believed and now we know. We believe first. And now we know. He didn't reason it out. He didn't look at the facts. It didn't make the most sense to him to follow Christ. There was something that compelled him to go with Christ. So he went. He went with Christ on belief. We believe and now we know. Belief is centered on words of eternal life. How do I know that? Look at verse 68. Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? 
You have words of eternal life. In the original, there's no the, there's no modifier there. Words of eternal life is what the text says. It seems to speak of the character of Christ's words. The character that they cause eternal life. Christ's word causes eternal life. He says, your word is eternal life. And now we believe and now we know, you see. His belief is based on the words of life. Not knowledge, not reason, not His abilities on Christ and on His Word. Belief in Christ leaves you with no other hope. That's why I entitled it, Burn the Boats. That may have seemed odd to you at first, but look at what Peter says. Lord, Jehovah, to whom shall we go? You've taken everything else from us. That was the case in Peter's life. You see, you want to, here's, the, here's the inside of my brain if you want to see how it works a little. As I'm studying this and I'm thinking about our church and I'm thinking about the churches around us and I'm thinking what has caused the church in our world today to seem in our nation, not around the world by the way, the church around the world is doing great <laughs> and, and having much success in spreading the gospel. Why is the American church backing up? And in my mind, I thought, because we have other places to go. We have other things to hold on to. We can't say with Peter, we've left it all. The boats have been burned. There's no retreat. If you won't have us, we're desperate. We have no hope. We don't say that in our world. I don't say that. You don't say that. Let's be honest. There's other things There's other lines in our life holding on. We're anchored to other parts, other things, other hopes. If this thing with Jesus don't work out, boy, I sure did get a good family out of it, though. If this thing with Jesus isn't true, man, by by listening to that word, boy, I was successful in my job. I got lots of good things. I'm healthier. People like me more. I'm popular. I'm successful. I have a family. Those are our boats, aren't they, in the American culture? If heaven's not real, at least we've got retirement. We can have heaven now. Just in case it's not real, we haven't burned the boat. We haven't burned the boat. Where where in our churches, in this church, is the George Mueller, who at 71 sells his family's fortune and sells the world to preach the gospel. He wasn't retreating. He wasn't going to take it easy for the last few years of his life. He was sailing forward. He was marching with Christ. He was saying, where else can I go, Lord? Where are the Adonai and Judsons of our day who will go to a little island that nobody else loves or nobody else wants, a vicious, plague-stricken island, and die saying, Christ is my hope. Where are the David Livingstones? Where are the Jim Elliots? Where are they in the American church? I say they don't exist because we have other hope besides Christ. I'm not preaching at you. I'm saying that's my mind. When I'm studying this passage, that's what I think about myself. I have other hope. So I don't have to be radical. I don't have to be... Odd. 
I can fit in and have Jesus too. When we believe and when we know, we have nowhere else to go but Christ because He burns the boats. Do you, can, you, can you hear the words a little, just a little, where Jesus says, He who comes to me and loses house, loses father, loses mother, loses wife, he who comes to me and loses those things, I tell you, will have tenfold in this life and the next. Can you hear the words of Christ in Peter's confession when, when Jesus told the disciples, take up your cross, take up the death instrument and die and follow me? Can you hear it? I can. I can hear it. We don't have anywhere else to go. As many of you know, my favorite uh, allegory is Pilgrim's Progress, I, I do believe, is one of the greatest books written ever. And uh, we're, we're, reading, we're listening to it on the radio when we drive around in the car, and we're reading it at night. Um, this second time we've been through it. And um, when the kids, kids are riveted by this stuff. They, they love it. As I'm reading it, I'm, I'm also riveted. Christian, the pilgrim, and the story is leaving the city of destruction, losing his family and his possessions, because evangelist tells him his hope is in the city of Zion and to enter through the gate. And so you get the pilgrimage. He goes through the gate and he finds himself at the cross where his burden falls away and rolls into the tomb and he's freed from his sins by Christ and he's clothed in the garments of Christ and he's given a scroll and his forehead is stamped. He's given eternal life. But then he goes a little further and he comes to a place in the path that is very narrow and two lines are chained on either side. But see, Pilgrim doesn't know they're, they're chained and he's afraid. And then for the first time in his journey, Pilgrim says, in his mind, you hear Bunyan say, I heard him say, I could go back, but think of all the things I've come through. If I go back, it is death. If I go forward, it's fear of death. You see the difference? Christian had burned the boats. He knew to go back to the city of destruction was sure death. He would die. He would never have eternal life. And he knew to go forward was the fear of death, but not true death. He went through those lines under the guidance of Watchful, the, the gatekeeper. And after spending some time in the palace beautiful with piety and purity and patience, he leaves with a coat of armor, invigorated for the fight, a sword in hand, shield in hand, wearing his armor. Get this, the first thing he comes against is this huge dragon, Apollyon. Okay? And he's afraid again. And this is what he thinks. I could go back, but my armor gives me no protection there because it's open in the rear. I must go forward. For if I turn my back, he will surely strike me and I'll die. He must go forward. So he fights Apollyon with the help of the angel. He wins the fight. 
and you think he's been through a lot, surely that's enough. But throughout the, the, the journey, the pilgrimage, Christian faces tests of faith, which give him the opportunity to say, I want to go back. But his boat is burned, so he goes forward. His only hope is forward. And it didn't end until he crossed the river. Standing at the great river, wide and deep, he's afraid. The waters rush around me. Death was at his door and he was afraid. But then lifting his eyes forward in faith, he saw the city and its beautiful gates. And the one who had died for him, he crossed the river. He finished the fight in faith. You see, what I'm describing for you is that that happens for those who truly believe. Like Peter, we have nowhere else to go. You have the word of eternal life. We believe and now we know that you are the Holy One of God. There's only two groups in here, really. You're either in Christ or outside of Christ. You either believe and know or you don't know. You don't believe. And all I'm asking you to do now, as I, as I close this here, is to contemplate who you are in Christ or outside of Christ. Believer, I ask you to think, what boat have you left on the seashore as a possible escape from the hard nature of faith? What other refuge do you have? And this time, I'm asking you to burn the boat. (laughs) Beg God to burn the boat, more correctly. Destroy the refuges. Only have Christ. And I know, because of the Word of God, that if that's true, if you only have Christ, then you have eternal life. Let's pray. Father, as we close this day and this time, thoughtful contemplation on your word I ask you to take the word truth and plant it in the heart change lives Lord we are we truly are either in you or an enemy outside of you reveal it to us make it clear and save those who are lost and strengthen those who are saved by Your grace and through Your Son, we pray. Amen. Thank you for being with us.